This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. If you look at the people who've joined in with us on this this journey, it's both people from our industry, meaning agriculture, and it's also people from people from tech, and it had to be the intersection of both. And, and my title should really just be chief translation officer, right? Uh, where I just translate between two very different modes of conversation, two very different languages. Hello, and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and today on the show, we are going to be discussing how the agriculture industry is embracing technology, specifically artificial intelligence. And uh, newsflash, the ag industry has actually always been incorporating newer and newer technologies as they come about. And this story is no different. Today, we are talking with the CEO of UNU, which is spelled I-U-N-U, and the CEO of that is Adam Greenberg. And so with UNU, Adam and his team are creating AI for greenhouse operations to help them track their plants, see how they're growing, um, help eliminate any pests or diseases that they're having, and really helping them grow plants quickly, easier, more efficient, and really incorporating artificial intelligence to do that. And we're not talking like a Skynet thing from the Terminator. We're talking about an AI that kind of tracks all the data where you no longer have to take detailed notes and just kind of keep an eye out for it. Instead, they have cameras, they have charts, they have figures, all sorts of data that tracks how the plants are growing so that these greenhouses can produce high quality fruit or um, high quality produce really, really quickly. So this is super cool. I love talking and learning more about technology in agriculture because you've probably heard me mention it a couple of times, but a lot of people think Agriculture is just, you know, John Deere tractors, cows and pigs, and that's it. When in reality, agriculture is one of those industries that encompasses pretty much every discipline out there. Engineering, mathematics, um, chemistry, biology, meteorology, history, every single 
practice out there can be found somehow in the ag industry. So this is such a cool episode with Adam. We're going to talk about the history of AI, how they're using it with UNU. And, you know, a lot of people think that with technology and artificial intelligence, we might actually be losing out on jobs. Well, Adam's going to tell us how it's actually creating new jobs and how they are encouraging students by showing them all the technology opportunities that are in the agriculture industry and also how they're going to use AI to fight climate change. So check out UNU at iunu.com and learn more about UNU and Adam. I really hope you enjoy this cool podcast. Thanks so much for listening and on with the show. All right. Well, Adam Greenberg, welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. So you are with a an ag software company um, called UNU. So I'm excited to learn you guys are kind of trying to help with AI in the ag industry and the greenhouse industry. So before we dive into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your background and how you got started with UNU. So UNU came from a intersection of two different past life experiences. So my father's a botanist, uh, focuses specifically on Phalaenopsis, but really all types of orchids and houseplants and office plants uh, and those types of ornamentals. So his intersection of growing up with those plants in the car, making deliveries, et cetera, and combined with the technology experience I got to learn being a, a younger generation, but also spending a couple of years in tech and then realizing that there's an opportunity to, to bridge the gap between the two. And they don't really speak the same universal language. So I spend most of my time translating between horticulturalists, agronomists, and, and technologists, because once you do that and they, you get to a common language, you can really solve problems in a way that, that the industry has needed for a long time. Hey, I like that. So you knew you guys make AI, artificial intelligence, and I know really when anybody hears AI, they probably automatically think Skynet, and they're like, all right, some sort of silverware technology that's going to take over the world one day. Um, what do you guys do? What is your AI and what is its purpose? Good question. I mean, AI, there's oftentimes a misconception around what AI is. AI in, in and of itself, artificial intelligence is a fancy word for uh, multiple statistical models and massive amounts of computing with large amounts of data on the back end to figure out and understanding and, and make sense out of things that it wouldn't naturally be easy to make sense out of. So it isn't this Skynet thing that's going to come in and take over the world. It, it is something, though, that is going to be woven into our generational advancement because people are going to begin to be able to learn from three generations ago in a way that doesn't have to be passed on by word of mouth. So what we like to talk about when you think about AI is there's automation and then there's artificial intelligence. And automation is something that gives you the same function over and over and over. If you, a sticking machine, a planting machine, right? It does the same thing over and over and over and over. And it will replace someone else who does the same thing over and over and over and over. But for artificial intelligence, it's easy to think of it as something that can learn from new experiences so that way it becomes more contextual and the value of its learning becomes geometric and the fact that it grows over time. And so after you've seen 
instead of planting over and over and over, once you've seen that there's a different outcome, if you change your spacing and the way you plant, it can begin to optimize, for example, how maybe your spacing of your planting should be based on the specific type of seed or based on your specific type of soil content or the expected weather patterns for that season. So it, it really is a, not nearly as over and, and all encompassing as most people expect. And it's also quite uh, reliant on the quality of the inputs or the data that it's receiving, because it's not going to come in and have some sort of perception and, and mind to be able to critically think through all these problems it's never seen before. Gotcha. Those are all really good points. So how did the whole creation process of this UNU software come up? Like, where did you guys get inspired of it? And then what was the whole development process up until now? Oh, that's a loaded question. So, <laughs> I can imagine. The, the, anyone who tells you that they had the exact idea with the exact way it was going to be 10 years from the day they thought of it is lying to you. Right. That, that, that's for me, my ability to articulate exactly what was coming. I didn't right? I, what I did is I just worked through lots and lots of problems. What I did is, is I brought in people who were way smarter than me and way better than me at a lot of different specific functions and skill sets and asked them to solve problems. Right. And so from that perspective, it started about seven years ago when we just started working on solving people's problems and, and, and it realized, we realized very quickly that in, in agriculture, the hardest thing that you can't, that for people to do, the hardest thing for people to do is to apply a lot of other people's industry learnings to this industry, because our industry, as we all know, is, is you have to put eyes on it, right? The, the plants are alive. They're, they're, they're things that respond day to day. And they also have momentum, right? So if you don't water a plant that is, but it has been watered for the last 14 days, then it can weather through it because they have momentum. Yeah. So from there, you then don't water it for three straight days. It starts to have lots of problems, right? So there, there, there are certain concepts that if you don't put eyes on it and you can't see exactly how the plant's responding, you're basically flying blind. That's why we have farmers. That's why people have to go look at their plants. And so we thought to ourselves, well, since 65% of our farmers and people who know how to do agronomy, know how to farm, are above the age of 55, and we're not getting the replenishment rate because kids in this generation don't wake up and say, I want to work seven days a week and be on a farm. That's just not a focus of this new generation like it has been in the past. So the people who want to replenish these agronomist jobs are shrinking as a whole. And so thus you have to take the people who are becoming experts and learning and, and being the best in, in, in our industry and scale them up. And so our question to ourselves was, how do we make it so a single agronomist or single grower can cover far more square footage, can cover far more ground with more precision and more detail and instead of, and then once you start to do that, you start to realize instead of just trying to meet an expectation, what happens if you continuously work on improving that expectation or in, you can learn in series in a way that you can say, okay, I did this one change and it increased my yield 20%, sorry, 2%, and then increase this one change and it decreased my yield 1%. Don't do that again. 
And now, okay, make this change. And so you can start to see in near real time how plants respond to your changes in a way that you can optimize much faster and learn quicker across more square footage and more acreage. And so that's how we sort of looked at our, our tool set and brought computer vision and machine vision to then instrument people's farms in a way that we could then give them that peace of mind, have their back and really reduce the risk, right? Have the downside protection that if you miss something, that this system can help you find it. And so that's what we built out with the engineers, with you know NASA and, and gaming companies and Intel, right? There's a bunch of engineers way smarter than me who, who built all this. I feel like whenever technology kind of goes into something, um, people think that it's going to take over jobs and reduce the amount of like, you know, human jobs. But it feels like this isn't that, of course, and it's more along the lines of just making production more sustainable and more efficient. I mean, would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I would say sustainable, scalable and more efficient. Right. We, we talk about how we want fresh local produce. Great. But who's going to go grow it all? So, yeah, we, we want that, but let's start building systems and let's start building out processes to actually obtain the goal that a lot of people want. Let's talk about how a, a fresh tomato can be grown in an optimal way differently in New York than it can be in Florida than it should be in Seattle. So what are some concerns of you guys making this AI and kind of trying to put it out there? Are there a lot of concerns out there about I mean, how some people might implement it or some struggles that it might face as it's trying to learn different growing methods and different growing productions. Are there any concerns or, or kind of like hesitations you guys have about it? So the, the, the major concern that we run into is that people think that it's there to replace them. And that's a concern that we get initially when you don't know what we do or how we do it. Uh, right. So we, we, when you look at a grower's or farmer's job, and you spend, look at their percentage of time scouting, for example. Imagine if you took that really smart person and gave them all the problems they had to solve, but they still had to solve them, right? So, so this is a, a and, the, and the concept of going around and looking for problems, we reduce the need to do that. But in the concept of solving the problems, we can tell them what they did last time before and show them the analytics on how the plant performed based on the different actions they perform. So it gives them the intelligence. It gives them the dashboard to be able to make the decision, but it's still their decision and it still requires their decision. And so you have to get people over that hurdle because this isn't about replacing farmers and growers. This is about scaling them in a way that they can become, they can do more with less because that's what the world requires of all industries today. And we can't turn our backs to that. So I'm looking at your website right now, unu.com, and it's I-U-N-U. I mean, you guys have been featured on a whole bunch of stuff like Greenhouse Management, CNBC, which is, I mean, a huge channel out there, Ag Funder, stuff like that. And it seems like the reception to this has been pretty great. What I know people in the ag industry are, are needing something like this. What has the whole tech world thought about this? Have they, have they been like, oh, wait, this is an underserved industry that we need to pay more attention to? This is a great idea. What has their reception been like? That's a really good question. The If you look at the people who've joined in with us on this, this journey, it's both people from our industry, meaning agriculture, and it's also people from people from tech. And it had to be the intersection of both. And, and my title should really just be chief translation officer, right? Uh, 
where I just translate between two very different modes of conversation, two very different languages. And so from the tech perspective, if you look at people who've been in ag before, they understand what this does very quickly. And especially if they're from the industry, they go, oh yeah, I would totally use this. And then the next thing they want to do is, okay, well, you know, where are you deployed? And we tell them we're deployed across all across North America and multiple countries. And they go, oh, okay. So, right, so it gives it some of that, that credibility. And then it goes to, well, how do I get one? But a key de- the key delineator here is if you, there are a lot of people who've been burned in our industry who aren't from the industry. And the reason why that's, that's important to note is because there's a lot of people who are jaded in tech who built a solution looking for a problem. And that's a really key delineation because if you built a solution, oh, I have this really cool widget and it'll solve, oh, wait, which problem? Let's go find a problem to solve with it. That, that generally leads in failure and leads to the technology people around it becoming biased that, oh, farmers don't adopt technology. Farmers, I mean, if you, if you think about it, farming in and of itself is the original profession. It's the very first profession of humanity that has been probably has the most, it now has the longest period of profession in, in human history. It's probably the first profession where people have been probably selling snake oil stuff and people selling all types of things that don't help farmers since the beginning of humanity, right? So it's a long, farmers are the most well-trained to spot a bullshitter. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. I like that. And so if you're, if you ask about the technology industry, you're going to find a lot of people are upset because they came in and they thought that they could just do it all better. They know all better. And they're going to tell everybody how to do their jobs because we're from technology. And, and that gives a lot of really good people in technology a bad rap, but those people exist and it leads to this emotional response to, oh, well, it's hard to get farmers to adopt. But if you have the references and farming is a small community, people talk. If you have the references, if you have people who like you, if you are driving value, farmers adopt very quickly. And that just means that they're really good at sifting through the noise and they don't get a, they don't get nearly enough credit for that. The last thing I'll say, because this is a long answer, but the last thing I'll say about this that's, that's important about farming is that people say farmers don't take risk, right? Technology people will oftentimes say, especially if, if they haven't done as well in the industry or they're not from the industry, they'll say farmers are hard to, they're hard pressed to take risk. <laughs> and, and my response is they take the largest risk of almost any industry in the world. Every single year, they bet literally the farm with the bank to plant and to to try to get yield, and they're betting on on their ability to to produce. And so the the risk profile of of farming is incredibly high, and you're betting on yourself. And people don't give farming and our industry enough credit for that. And then people get upset when they come in and say, oh, well, I want to sell you my widget. And the farmers say, well, I'm already taking enough risk. Show me someone who, who's already taken this risk and, and seen, seen good results. Well, I, you know, I don't want to do that. Just take my word for it. Man, you're hitting the nail on the head in so many ways. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And 
the more research and the more I learn about farming, I mean, it involves everything, biology, chemistry, science, um, meteorology, engineering, and now it's getting into coding and artificial intelligence. And it involves so much stuff and so much discipline. And I mean, like you were saying, like farmers do take a lot of risk because sometimes, I mean, farms go under, I mean, crops can't, sometimes the crops aren't going to produce and then yet they've got to pay off like millions of dollars of equipment. And so they definitely are like the original risk takers out there. And so those are all really, really good points. Um, and kind of going off of that, uh, do you feel like, I know a lot of people, the 30,000 foot view, they think agriculture doesn't have any technology, but I mean, now we've got software, we've got a whole bunch of data going into it. Do you think that this might change the perception like you get, you guys with Unu might change the perception that people have towards agriculture that could hopefully one day have more and more kids, more and more people going towards the ag industry as they see that there's more technology involved to it than they think? I believe that the way to get, so the short answer, the short answer to your question is yes. The way to get the next generation involved is make them realize how amazing it is to be able to cultivate a live organism and optimize and help with its its expression of traits, right? And, and working through that in a way that you can optimize for crunch, or you can optimize for yield, or you can optimize for nutrients, you can optimize for color. There's so many, and it's all from the same genetic, same genome. It, it, it's an amazing process to, to, to farm that is incredibly hard work. And the way you're going to get kids of tomorrow interested in it is, is by bringing the education back to the schools and allowing kids to realize how amazing it is to, to, to put their hands on some, some amazing produce, right? A lot of kids don't have access to produce. A lot of kids don't have access to good produce, I should say. And prioritizing nutrition and, and the calorie if we can get away from educating based on a calorie as a, as a, as a jewel, right? If you think about calories and jewels and you think about that a calorie in of the energy is created equal, but not all calories are created equal in terms of how our body in, in, interacts with them. So we have to shift the whole world's mindset out of calories and into calorie quality and calories. And so as a function of, of energy, as, as a specific calorie jewel, that's not enough information. And so getting kids and getting the next generation to realize that there's a calorie quality and that they can help be a part of, you know, being beneficial to the, to the world and to the next generation by getting into farming and tool sets around things that are fun to play with. And farming is, is fun when you think of it from the, the, thinking perspective, it's also really tough work, but it's rewarding. There's something about farming and growing that is, is, is rewarding in a way that a lot of other professions don't have that same feeling. You're, you're using your mind, body, and soul to get through tough situations and problem solving and critical thinking. So I would say it starts with education and it starts with both nutritional education and with farming education by bringing tools to kids. And there's a lot of great companies out there who are doing this in all of their local hometowns. And so I don't think it's going to be UNU that solves for this. I think it's going to be UNU plus everyone else who's already solving for this also solves for it because this is a, it's got to be a community effort. The whole world has to push that way. And it's not going to be done by just one company to get kids excited about farming again. Mm, I like that. And 
I think it's very important what you were saying. It's, I mean, farming is very rewarding. And then we've also got to get people to pay attention to different nutritional values and nutritional needs for people and just kind of really improve our diets and just kind of learn where our food comes from and all that stuff that it pays kind of a, it's really important and not a lot of people really pay attention to it. They just eat whatever, but I mean, education is kind of going to solve it all. So definitely. Um, so how do you feel like this is going to help with sustainable agriculture and climate change? I know a lot more people in urban areas are starting to grow these huge and amazing um, rooftop greenhouses. And I'm assuming you guys would be super helpful with that. So as that's going to help reduce transportation costs and all that stuff in urban areas, do you think this will have a great benefit at reducing climate change and kind of the impact the agriculture does have on that? So you specifically called out rooftop greenhouses, and those are great for marketing. But I would I would argue it's far more efficient to do greenhouses in the suburbs right outside a city than putting it on top of a city's building. And that just means that they're, they're, to have that amount of water and to have that amount of infrastructure built on top of rooftops that generally aren't built for whole in, for whole structures to be built on top of them, going 20 minutes right outside the city, I would I would I would generally have a preference to see greenhouses all around the outskirts of cities because they're still local, yet they're not getting in the way of everyone's daily life of, of either living or working or convenience of entertainment, right? So the, the, the idea of having a, a community where you can have incredibly dense living, incredibly dense working, incredibly dense entertainment, that's what cities are. I, I would go, I would, I would argue that the world needs to go from having a, centralized production in one or two states that goes across the whole country to it's still local and still great to have greenhouses outside of every city and thus that becomes distributed farming but at one-tenth the cost or one-fifth the cost of what it would cost to put it 15 minutes inside the city and i've seen a bunch like not not only including um greenhouse or rooftop greenhouses but also big warehouses that are vacant in like you're saying suburban areas where companies are going in and converting those old shopping centers to huge indoor greenhouses. And I mean, they can put, they can grow greenery or, or greens and then kind of, I don't know, ve smaller vegetables, but they can grow them in racks to where you can grow them year round in a huge space. And it's, I mean, it's great for that local economy and it's great for, you know, reducing climate change. Yeah. So from a climate change perspective, the, there's a lot of externalities that have to be factored in. I, I think you're going to find vertical farming, greenhouse farming, and outdoor farming to be all part of the answer. Uh, from a climate change perspective, that, that's both farming of livestock and of, of uh, commodity as well as specialty crop production. There, it's going to have to be a, <laughs> a team effort, right? Not one thing is going to solve for it. So carbon capture for uh, through microorganisms that may be subsidized, that put it back in the soil, that till it back down, um, may be part of the answer. Uh, there's beneficial bacteria that might be able to be part of the answer. Uh, food miles, in terms of how far it travels, part of the answer. Uh, manufacturing of, of components uh, closer to where it's used, part of the answer, right? So there, there are so many food waste 
part of the answer. There, there are so many different parts of the, the value chain and the supply chain that need to be uh, honed in on that can together make a massive impact, but alone may not make an appreciable impact. It uh, means that the, there has to be a collective understanding. I think that's where we have an opportunity to come together and, and communicate is throughout the whole value chain and supply chain, where are all of those opportunities that we see and, and new ones will come up all the time, but where is that one place where everybody can see the impact of the collective conversation and collective exercises and collective movement that alone is, is let's just say, demoralizing? It is kind of a collective thing where, I mean, rooftop gardens, vertical farms, even just traditional row crops are all going to have to do their part to help reduce climate change. So all very good points. Um, would you consider that you guys would work for both organic and conventional growers? Or have you seen more organic users use you guys? Or what, what are your thoughts on the whole organic versus conventional agriculture debate? So we have customers in both. And that is a very touchy subject for the industry right now because the organic uh, le- the organic legislation that was originally written wasn't written to exclude hydroponics. Yet it was interpreted and put into law in a way in that the body, governing bodies excluded hydroponics. And so that discrepancy has led to lots of tension and a lot of farmers are saying, well, I, I farm in soil. That's more natural. And the fact is they, the governing body found a way to say that salts are not necessarily organic while uh, let's just say everything else that is considered organic is very similar or oftentimes more detrimental when it comes to the sprays, right? Half-lives, et cetera. So there's a lot of touchy subject around that. I'm not a driver in that one. I I, believe customers in both and I I try not to uh, meddle in it. But what I will say is there are such things, salt is part of the earth. Minerals are part of the earth. Using them to help cultivate is something that I find fascinating to watch because to me, it optimizes nutrient uptake in a way that it allows plants to have more bioavailability and you can have incredible genetic diversity and and microorganism diversity in soil. You can also recreate that in hydroponics. So I'm a big proponent of saying, you know, hydroponically grown and organic, and also, you know, you can say soil grown and organic. I, I think, I think there's we should collaborate on the fact that we're everyone's just trying to get to everyone's trying to build a profitable business farming that is can be done in a multitude of different ways. We should support them all. I don't, I don't generally believe in just cutting people out because of philosophical reasons. That's the one thing that I would say that I would take a stance on is philosophically inclusive is generally more beneficial long-term than exclusive. And so if you want to build out two different types of labels, one for soil and one for hydroponics, fine, but they still should both be able to use 
an organic organic mindset as opposed to conventional. And if people want to stay conventional, they should do that. We I have a friend of mine who's one of the largest uh, carrot farmers in the world, and his organic production now uh, per acre is oftentimes larger than his conventional. So it's just about we organic hasn't been around long enough to be fully optimized as conventional has been for a hundred years, right? Ever since World War II, we've been using what was the surplus for, you know, armories and for our military to the nitrates for farming. Now we, with organic, people have been optimizing for about a decade, two decades. And so that has now begun as farmers are very good at doing, they're good at optimizing that has now begun to produce even more. And so there's, there are not just anecdotal, but very hard evidence that both ways work and both ways work profitably. And you can do it in hydroponics and you can do it in soil. It's there, it's all part of the solution. And so I just prefer inclusive as opposed to exclusive uh, parts of our industry. I like that inclusive not instead of exclusive. And the, the more I've learned about it, like we were talking earlier, um, whenever I interviewed Crow Cow, uh, their founder was talking about, they were working with the farmer and the, he asked him, he, was, he asked the rancher, like, why, why aren't you considered organic? And he, he pointed to a fence post. And he was like, because I use a treated post for our fences, I give our cows um, organic feed, organic grass, but because of that pressure treated wood, we cannot be organic. So it's very interesting to learn all the rules and regulations in place to it. And I've, I've even heard from some hydroponic farmers, like you were saying, that because they grow a certain hydroponic way, they don't necessarily can be categorized as organic. So it's very interesting. And it's, I mean, I love organics because, I mean, you save what, like 80% more water over the life cycle of the plant. I mean, it's so much more sustainable. We, we have some customers that are saving 96% more water. Oh, wow. I, do you know what kind of crops those are on? Uh, the one I'm specifically thinking of is leafy greens. Wow. Okay. That's super neat. 96%. Holy cow. I believe it. Um, all right. So here's a question I like to ask everybody. Um, what are your thoughts on the farmer-consumer relationship? Do you think it's getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? I've seen more and more farmers kind of going to social media because that's where consumers are and they're showcasing what they do. So do you think that relationship is getting better? What do you think that relationship is now in 2020? <laughs> what are my thoughts is very different than where is it going? <laughs> well, that, well, all right. Well, how about what are your thoughts and then where do you think it's going? Uh, my thoughts are that the, <laughs> my thoughts are irrelevant in this one. Um, my, my thoughts on the farmer and consumer relationship really stick to one component. And that is, if you look at the patterns of history, uh, we can learn from them. And that the farmer used to be connected to the consumer was strong until we got to centralized production, which allowed us to change the cost structure, which made everything more available. But we used different nutritional and preserve different nutritional aspects and preservatives that now that the consumer is becoming more educated, I think the consumer, the consumer drives all right. The consumer preferences drives everything in our economy. And so given that my, my thoughts on it are we need to keep a pulse on the consumer. And so that is becoming more and more disjointed 
because things like the consumer price index doesn't include the cost of food. So when we have CPI saying CPI is going down and everyone's saying, but all my food's going up in price at the, at the grocery store, but yet everyone on the economic side are looking at CPI, when, when, when the consumer's preferences and consumer's sentiment is detached from the economic measurement, you have problems. So we have problems. So my thoughts are we need to fix that. But if I look at where it's going, where I don't think there's really much, let's just say, argument here is that consumers are now preferring brands and natural brands. As you said, you had people on the show like CrowdCow, brands, right? Everyone's bringing brands from the farmer and cons- to the consumer. And so you're seeing a centralized management of distributed farms. You're seeing centralized management of distributed facilities. You're seeing centralized management of now distributed brands. These are all that are local, right? So it's, it's completely changing the way, if you look at InBev, right? They're buying all the local breweries. All of this is coming down to the fact that there are now local communities that everyone's gone locally focused, but yet are centralized and centrally managed. And so we are going from what was originally uh, distributed farming to centralized farming back to distributed farming, but with centralized management, right? So this is just a pattern. If you look at the influx and patterns of humanity, we're going to, we're going back towards the pendulum is swinging back towards distributed farming. And it's funny that's following technology. Technology is now moving towards distributed computing, right? So we went from distributed servers to something that we call cloud, which is just other people's computers, that's centralized management, to now back to distributed, they're calling it edge computing, which is just a fancy way of saying back to the edge, back to your own server, just smaller and smaller devices, right? So the patterns of technology and humanity follow each other. And so you can start to, they're, they're long waves, right? They're long sine waves. But if you pattern match them, where the world is going now is the people who are going to win are people who are going to be able to have, especially farmers who are going to win, who can start to build their brands or have and partner with other people who can help them build their brands to the consumer. And then you're going to find that that brand is very locally loved. And then you're going to find a bunch of locally loved brands of farmers and they're going to buy all the other local, right? You're seeing a consolidation. It's becoming harder and harder to get the margin that you want. And so thus the economies of scale for pricing leverage, the large distributors and the large big box retailers mean that the people who got squeezed were all the, the disparate farmers. The, the, we had a very fragmented market of farming 20 years ago. You're seeing consolidation already happen to give more pricing power to the farmer to be able to push back on the large big box retailer and the large distributor. It's just a function of following, you know, it's a call and response, right? It's, it, it's just a response to an action, action response. So now you're seeing farmers consolidate because they need to get that pricing leverage. Then they're going to have to build brands, which they're already starting to do. And then you're going to start to see centralized management and roll-ups of different farming brands. And that's where this goes, is that consumers are going to love their farmer brands and they're going to be connected to their farmer, but there's just going to be fewer of them. That makes sense, man. You, that got philosophical real quick, but I mean, that totally makes sense. And it, it's, it seems like it's kind of going in a circle 
which I mean, hopefully, I feel like with COVID, there have been more and more farmer brands um, that have been trying to go directly to consumers and they're taking great advantage because I know a lot of farmers have been having to sell instead of selling direct to um, restaurants or grocery stores, they're selling direct to consumers and they're being super profitable. I know, I know a lot are going to try to continue that like once this COVID whole thing goes away. And so, I mean, th those are all very good points. I mean, consumers are getting uh, loyal to brands and then groups will buy up those brands and we'll just continue on a circle and see how that goes, I guess. Yep. Yeah, we're on, we're on the same page. And if it's too philosophical, just tell me to tone it back. <laughs> no, no, that was great. I like that. I like that. I haven't thought about a lot of those points. So what's the future with you new? I know you guys are going to continue to grow, get word out there, have more and more greenhouses and operations use, use, get, use you guys. Um, what's the future? The, fu the future with you new, and really it's the future for the industry with you new, is we're, we're changing the risk profile of what it means to be a farmer. We're bringing the economics back to the farmer and we're doing it without making them sell their business, right? So we're allowing them to take the learnings and the benefit of our learnings across customers. As a good example is, is we have a mildew detector or chlorosis detector. You get the benefits of, of us finding problems for you that we've seen maybe even at other customers. But at the same time, it, it allows you to have distributed facilities, distributed ownership and distributed uh, operations. So from my perspective, we had two options. We could have built the system to compete with farmers, or we could have built a system to give to all the farmers so they can all benefit from it to try to empower them, right? It's an empowerment model as opposed to a competitive model. And you had, you, we had to make that decision early on and it just wasn't philosophically aligned with me to compete, right? I want to help my friends. I have lots of friends who've gone out of business in the last two years in farming. Why? Well, we all know why, right? Pricing pressure is way down. Subsidies are keeping a lot of them afloat, you know, single digit margins. And so that means that we need to sit there and connect all the farmers and help them do more with less, giving them their economics back by really changing that risk profile, by reducing all the loss that they, that they oftentimes miss because they can't be everywhere all at once. And by helping them reduce their loss and optimize their growing protocols and their farming protocols, you know, we, we want, we're, we're that partner for every farmer who's trying to turn those single digit margins into double digit margins. That's what the, that's what we're there to do. And that's what we're doing for, for North America and soon to be all around the world. Heck yeah. That's awesome. Well, I mean, that's so cool. And real quick, before I forget about it, you mentioned it before we started recording that, um, and I know a lot of it has gotten popular in the past couple of, of months, really. Um, have you guys seen an increase with cannabis farmers using you guys? I know a lot have been using them for like HTC and stuff like that. So have you seen a lot of increase there? Yeah, so we have customers all across uh, all verticals in the greenhouse industry. Um, surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, that the major increase in market uh, interest has been from the produce industry. So COVID has been a big accelerant for the produce industry in a way that everybody loves buying, for example, packaged foods. So the idea that you can buy your leafy greens in a clamshell where it wasn't touched, it's never been touched by a person, it, you know, it's been farmed and cut 
you know, it's moved by people, but the actual leaf has never been touched. People like that food safety. And so when food, food, food safety comes to the forefront, greenhouse produce oftentimes uh, has a consumer, it delivers a consumer preference in a way that we've seen an accelerated, an accelerated adoption. And for, for vine crops like tomatoes and for leafy greens, this is one of the best years on record. So uh, that's where the acceleration is. And, and cannabis is a much smaller market compared to uh, food. <laughs> that's crazy. Well, that's cool. Well, Adam, this has been so cool learning about you guys with Unu and your software and AI and all that. Um, if people want to learn more about you guys, they can go to, where can they go to follow you guys? Um, Unu.com, where else? Yeah, you can find us on all social media under Luna Powered. And at the same time, we go to a lot of the, the conferences. Uh, if you are interested in from the industry perspective or other than that, um, follow us on social media, come to our website or just reach out to me. My email is adam at iunu.com. Uh, I'm pretty open and always trying to help move the industry in the right direction. So feel free to reach out. Well, absolutely, man. Well, thanks. Well, thanks for being on. This was really cool. I'll, we'll have to touch base soon and see how you guys are doing. Um, it's I, I always love learning about software in, in the ag industry because it's something that I don't think a lot of people are very aware of. And so it was cool to learn about you guys. And I think this product is really cool. Can't wait to see what you guys do with it. Thanks for having me on, Trevor. Thanks again for listening. Again, our guest today was Adam Greenberg with Unu. Be sure to check him out at iunu.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a family member or follow us on Instagram simply at farm underscore traveler, which is where a lot of you already follow us and you can stay up to date on the show and our guests and all that jazz. Well, thanks so much for listening and we will see you next week. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.